0: Hello, Click Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Click Thoughts Podcast. Uh, just, you know, a couple of things before we get into this interview. One, I just want to, I guess, apologize for the last couple of days. I haven't been able to put out an episode. The system I was using uh, has, uh, has crashed. And I did lose some interviews. I was lucky enough to have everyone come back on an interview during this week. So, I, um... I just want to apologize for the lack of episodes over the last five days. Uh, I do have some great guests in the next few episodes, so I really hope you do enjoy them. Um, but I just wanted to let you all know that there was a delay this week. And yeah, I just like keeping you all in the loop. Uh, another quick thing uh, is I started uh, writing uh, articles on Medium. Uh, Medium is a platform out there for people, I guess any creative writer, to write and post articles. And I really just uh, wrote one today that really um, meant a lot to me. Uh, it's an article about my grandfather who passed away in 2014 and he was a big inspiration for me in cooking. And I really have, I've really never taken the time to sit down and write and think about, um, you know, everything he kind of meant to me as a chef and looking back on it during this time, I wanted to write something for him. So I wrote this article, it's called I cook for someone who is no longer here. And I would really appreciate it. If you ever have the chance to go read it. Um, it really meant a lot to me. And yeah, I, I really think that, uh, gives a good insight in how i feel as a cook and i hope it awakens something in you all in terms of someone who you care about that has inspired you how to cook uh because i know during this time it's tough and right now i'm looking back on the fond memories and definitely he is one of them um but yeah getting into the interview uh my uh, guest today is renee speraza uh she is someone i've interviewed twice now due to the um the uh the site that I used to interview going down. So I just want to thank her for uh, coming back on the podcast. I know, you know, all time is valuable even during this quarantine time. So I just wanted to thank her for doing that. Renee is a um, court of master sommelier, certified sommelier. She is part of the caps, Ontario hospitality liaison, and she is a wine consultant for them. And she is the wine writer of the wine effect in the distillery district magazine. Renee has worked in many roles within the wine industry. From importer to contracted peddler of fortified juice, she has seen all the ups and downs this exciting industry has to offer. Renee has a specialty for critical thinking, working to create brand and idea presence, and has a knack for breaking down the world of wine into simple sips. Exploring the world of wine has become more than just a driving force in her life, and she is passionate about bringing all sides of wine to the table. And I was really excited to have her on. I found Renee through her Instagram page, which is uh, Wine by Renee. Um... Feel free to look it up. Also, when I post the episode on Instagram, I'm sure you'll be able to find her page there. But uh, she puts a lot of great uh, posts out on Instagram about wine, like really thoughtful posts with a lot of copy in the description of the post. Like She had one great post where she was pairing pizzas with different types of wines. And I just think this broad knowledge is so useful, especially in a time where it feels like everyone is looking to learn something new. So I really wanted to have her on. We have a great conversation. Uh, We get into her beginnings of becoming a sommelier. We talk about how the sommelier test works because we haven't really, uh, I don't think we've really gotten into that on the podcast before, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, We talk about how she's an independent contractor for uh, being a sommelier, and I thought that was really interesting that she has her own business that she runs. And finally, we get into why wine can be so unapproachable and how we can be better as an industry to make wine more approachable to the everyday consumer so i really hope you enjoy this podcast i really do want to thank renee for taking the time to come on and do this episode twice because like i said the first time the files didn't work out but uh like i said thank you so much line Clue nation i hope you all are doing well uh missed you a ton this week and i'm really excited for this episode so here we go Hey Renee, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Well, Thank you so very much for having me, Ray. I really enjoy being on the podcast.
0: Of course. Uh, I say welcome back for everyone listening because Renee and I had actually recorded an episode before and unfortunately the audio uh, files were lost. I know I posted it on my Instagram so Renee has been willing to come back on the show and so I just first off wanted to thank you for your time and really excited to chat and kind of share your story with the listeners.
1: That's no problem at all, and I happily uh, accept the award for most gracious podcast host guest. No problem
0: at all. Awesome. Uh, If you just wanted to introduce yourself really quick, that would be great.
1: Yeah, no problem. So uh, my name is Renee Sperazza. I'm a Court of the Master Sommeliers certified sommelier. I work for I work with the uh, Canadian Association of Professional Sommeliers here in Ontario. I also am a wine writer, contractor, and wine consultant. But in my time in wine, I've also worked as an importer, and uh, I also help people with like studying and mentorship stuff like that.
0: Okay, awesome. I I know we're gonna get into that in a little bit, but first, I'd love to know where you're from and what food was like for you growing up.
1: So, uh, if if you live in in the place where I'm from, if you live in Toronto, there is a city just north of it called Vaughan, and in Vaughan, there's this place called uh, Woodbridge. Woodbridge has a lot of Italians there, especially when I was growing up. So. I'm Italian, and I'm from Woodbridge, and it's kind of a little bit of a joke here if you're an Italian from Woodbridge. Uh, But uh, yeah, so my parents are from Italy, and I'm the first generation born in Canada. Uh, So food for me when I was growing up was mainly like very traditional uh, Southern Italian cuisine that my grandmother really made. Uh, we didn't really go out very much. We mainly spent like a lot of time at home. And mm-hmm. uh, the funny thing is that uh, I didn't really actually even like wine when I was a kid because not only did my grandparents and my parents make their own everything, all the food for us and we never really went out, but we also made our own wine and it was terrible, really <laughs> It was awful. It was just, I didn't, I didn't think I would like wine if that's what wine was.
0: Okay. What, what, uh, what made it terrible?
1: So it's, the funny thing about it is it's not wine in the way that you would expect because it's basically made from whatever grapes my grandparents found. So it could have been just like regular grapes and, uh, regular grapes are not wine grapes. They're, they're two different sets of species and, uh, They were also bottling them in used one liter pop bottles. So they would rinse them out, but they would just (laughs) seal it with the screw cap. So there's automatic levels of now I know this There's automatic levels of oxidation and the fact that uh, it wasn't it was probably table grapes that they were using, which are far less sweeter than uh, grapes that are used for wine. The resulting wine, it just had the weirdest flavor. It was strong, really strong. It was like stronger than Amarone. It had uh, more tannins than Barolo and you had to mix it with pop for it to be palatable. So it was really, really intense.
0: Jeez. Uh, That's crazy. I mean, I I couldn't imagine drinking that. I mean, I had a great grandmother who um, didn't make her own wine, but very much in the same way, kind of living off of the land in terms of whatever she had or whatever she grew in her backyard or, you know, not really depending on, um, what was out there in terms of grocery stores or not. And so I always thought that way of life was interesting. Uh, how much Mm -hmm. of an impact did those uh, moments you mentioned with your grandmother, uh, cooking and the dishes she made, how much of an impact did it have on you in terms of your relationship to food?
1: Well, my relationship to food, uh, food is culture. It's its really a, like a time of gathering and uh, it uh, it's, it's a place where everyone kind of just stops and enjoys each other's company. I think for me, especially given the career that I've gone into, having those moments of uh, good times around food and uh, people taking care of you, especially in that type of setting, has really uh, driven home what I feel I want to give in any hosp in a hospitable way, how I want to like be a hospitalitarian, so to speak, uh, to mm. steal words from uh, setting the table, uh, <laughs> and uh, that's just kind of the the practices and the feelings really that I always like to communicate whenever I'm uh, working in a restaurant or working on a menu or doing whatever I'm doing within wine.
0: Okay, yeah, I mean it. It's definitely interesting how those first experiences kind of shape and mold you uh, further along in your career. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was wondering, so, you know, obviously you said because of that wine uh, stored in the pop bottles, uh, you weren't really interested in it at first. What kind of drew you to be interested in wine and also, like, what just, like, urged you to go into the food industry?
1: So, I. In the order that it happened was, I got into the food industry first.
0: Okay. Um,
1: I had gone to I gone to university, and I have a whole degree in environmental policy and urban development that I am mildly using. Let's say that that would sound better. Um, and uh, I was working in restaurants the entire time. I really started to enjoy working in restaurants more. I really liked the the sense of like helping people and making their evening. And that just really always gave me a lot of joy. I had a lot of uh, general managers that really kind of helped me grow in the way that I wanted to grow. And uh, that's where really the blossoming of like these two loves of my life have really started to grow. Uh, And I've brought them into almost everything that I did, even when I was still in university. When it came to wine, it really became very clear to me that if I wanted to succeed in hospitality and uh, do well, that I would have to know about wine. So Mm -hmm. I started really learning about that uh, as quickly as possible. It wasn't until I really started learning and how much I realized that like wine is an agricultural resource at its source. And it made me feel better for using, quote unquote, my university degree in a different way um that I really started to enjoy it and uh it kind of encompasses everything about like agriculture history human interactions all these different types of things are, are part of wine
0: okay and I mean just uh I guess I think that's one of the things that interested me about wine is wine is something that's so diverse and it's so um it's sophisticated you know like when you're learning about wine, like learning about wine is challenging. Like learning how to make scrambled eggs is relatively easy. Uh, there's only so, I mean, there's a bunch of methods, but it's pretty much heat, low, um, uh, stir, and you'll come up with a good scrambled egg. But with wine, it's so vast and there's so much, uh, so many different factors that can make a wine good or make a wine great, or even make it bad. And, uh, I don't know, I mean, you weren't, into, were you, how were you when you first started learning about wine? Like, was there a lot of intimidation or fear in, like, the giant subject of winemaking?
1: I think for me, I always try to to take to take the stance that I know what I know, and uh, that's, that not in, like, a cocky way, that's, that's to just be like, I know what I know, and I know that I always have to learn more, so... Mm. I usually try, especially when I'm beginning to learn something and what I did when I was learning wine is find people that could always help me out. And I'd be like, I don't know anything. Tell me, please help me. Um, And that's really how I ended up learning more about that. But wine is is really quite complicated it's really funny we're handed these uh wine lists every time we go into a restaurant but you kind of need an encyclopedia to know what the wines are most people know like yeah most people know classic varietals like Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Riesling, Pinot Grigio stuff like that but it's, it's the places that they come from the way the wine is made why the same grape in two different places tastes different while you might like one more than the other. Um, all that really kind of factors into it. And I'd say that like the biggest thing when learning wine is just to understand that there's, there's constant things that you're always going to have to be learning. Even master sommeliers today, when, when China started making wine and now they're doing like a wine was just reviewed by, um, Greg, who owns a Coravin, and Dylan Proctor from China on uh, an Instagram live the other day. And I was floored. It's, it's gotten to a a big enough height. So the world in wine is always evolving and it's a massive, massive field. So the biggest thing to do is to just be as open-minded as possible. And to just see that you're always going to have to be learning. And that's the fun side of it to me. But if you don't feel like that, lifelong learner thing is always for you then it's it's a it's a big lifelong learning type of industry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah I can only imagine. Uh, So I guess Mm -hmm. how did you progress throughout your career then um, after your opportunity?
1: So uh, basically what happened for me in my career is I started like I said I started working in restaurants and when I started getting into wine I had this uh, GM who uh, had told me that there were these all these wine tastings around the city where that would happen every month. And they were put on by different countries of the world. You can go and taste the wines. And I was floored. I was amazed by that. It was like, perfect, mm-hmm. sign me up. So I started going and uh, I realized that I really wanted to work abroad and I wanted to work on a winery. So I started bringing resumes with me and just asking people, like, do you... Would you take me on as an internship uh, for the summer? Can I come and work with you on your winery for a little bit? And then I ended up going to work in Italy uh, in uh, a town called Rancade, just really just really close to Venice, about like 20 minutes inland from Venice. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really kind of what cemented even farther for me that I wanted to be in wine. I, it was funny that I got there and I didn't even realize that I, I really, really, really wanted to do this until I was there. Okay. So yeah, it was really funny because I thought, I knew I liked wine. I knew I wanted to be on a winery, but I didn't really realize how much this was a big passion
0: of mine. And what's it like to be like in an Italian winery?
1: It's really interesting. And, uh, it's really fun, but at the same time, there's, like, mild culture shock moments. Okay. So that, one was real, that one's probably, like, the funnier aspect of it. So there was one day I was working on the winery, and the police showed up, and uh, I kind of freaked out because I was like, why are the police here? And uh, they're like, oh, no, they're just here for some wine and lunch. And then they had some wine and had a tour, ate some lunch, and then left. And I was like, oh, interesting, Cool. So that was probably the biggest difference. The other fun thing about working on the winery in Italy is that I was mainly doing a lot of uh, trade work for them and sales. Yeah. Uh, And then it wasn't harvest time when I was there, but I got to uh, see how they were making the wine within the vineyard, uh, see how it was happening within the cellar, and that really was a great education for me. The other side of it was I was uh, touring a lot with... uh, the export manager, as well as the oenologist. So I got to take in all their information about not just about like learning how wine is made, but learning how wine plays into like the larger role on the global stage. And that's where that whole sales side comes into action. It's it's basically wine is divided into two separate worlds. There's what's happening in the vineyard, which we all learn about. And mm-hmm. then there's the side of like getting it into everybody's glass.
0: Okay. Interesting. Um, and so then obviously you had known then that you wanted to do this for a living. Um, and so Mm -hmm. I obviously you would go work on to work in restaurants, but I want to know more about like becoming a sommelier and what that process was like. Like, when did you first hear about what a sommelier was and why was it one of your goals?
1: I think the first time I had heard what a sommelier was, I was already working in restaurants. I was in university, okay. and I knew that a sommelier was a was a wine expert. And um, I started to kind of move towards that when I came back from Italy. I I decided by the time I come back, I want to be a sommelier. I want to I want to work in wine. And it also kind of hit me in the face quite quickly when I came back that. I needed to get this certification to to work as a Sommelier, So both those two driving forces came together. the fact that I just wanted it and the fact that that was the the pathway to the jobs that I wanted as well um, and to me doing my passion every single day. Mm-hmm. So the process of becoming a Sommelier is is really in, intense. So there is uh, the court there's the court of the master Sommeliers. And that's basically the organization that uh, all of this testing and uh, certifications come out of. So there's four levels, essentially. There's an introductory sommelier, a sommelier, which is what I am, mm-hmm. an advanced sommelier, and then a master sommelier. Uh, and those are the those are the gentlemen that have been in the SOM movies, uh, the first one. Uh, that really showed what the master sommelier level looks like. Yeah. But basically, the test is divided into three portions. And it's uh, three portions all the way through uh, at every level. But you dive deeper into the information every time. So there's a blind tasting portion. There is a theory portion, which is in a written exam. And then you have a service exam portion as well, where masters in your field test you and then also ask you questions at the same time while you're giving a very specific style of service. Okay. So, it's a it's a pretty intense test.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can only imagine. Um, I mean, if you just want to walk us through, I guess for you personally, how each section went for uh, in regards to your current role as sommelier, like what was the blind tasting like? I guess to start out with.
1: Yeah. So I had spent maybe about. I probably I spent over a year, but between a year to like just over a year preparing for my sommelier uh, certification exam. Wow. And I was I was really, really worried and nervous the day of the exam because I had gotten a cold the night before a couple like about the night or the day before or about the day before the night before. And uh, I was so nervous and so worried because I knew the blind tasting portion was going to be the first thing in the morning. And uh, I spent maybe the the night before I was up all night and I was retasting wines and just trying to figure out what the tasting notes tasted like on my sick palate so I could try to pass the blind tasting portion as best as possible. (laughs) I had already, yeah, I had already like reasoned with myself that if I'm not going to get them all right. I would just, I just want to get as many as possible and enough to pass that portion because you're marked overall. So I'd already knew that that one was going to be really hard for me because I could barely, I could barely smell or taste anything. It was terrible. I was honestly surprised that I passed it. And uh, then the, the theory portion, uh, that was a little bit easier for me. I've always been better at theory. Uh, it's it's a lot of uh, self-study um, because for the Court of the Master Sommeliers, there are no courses to prepare you for these examinations. You study on your own, and then you go and take the test. Uh, it's always wise to get a mentor to help you, which is what I've had my whole career. and. Uh, the theory portion is basically all the hours that you put in. I had been studying previous, like I said, for a year, but it was about three to five hours every single day carved out to just do theory study and theory practice. Okay. And then the uh, service portion of the exam for for me, I I was pretty, I was really confident in the fact that I would be able to do the service really well. What I was mainly nervous about was what questions I was going to be asked, uh, how I would handle the questioning. I'd worked in restaurants at this point. By the the time I went to go take the exam, I had worked in restaurants for about mm, five years. So I was comfortable being on the floor. I was comfortable holding a tray, pouring wine, talking to people. And sometimes uh, during the test, uh, the masters in your field are trying to trip you up. Mm -hmm. So I was really comfortable in those types of situations. But I was really nervous on what they would ask me because I really didn't didn't know beforehand. We had done so many mock exams and so many practice runs to prepare. But you really don't know what it's going to be like on the day of. So it was a really intense day. I don't think I ate all day. I barely slept. <laughs> I was just waiting to pass. And, um, and I really wanted to get somebody who was going to test me for the service portion and uh, like an easier uh, person for the one of the master smollies and one of the master smollies that was a little bit easier to test. There's five that are in uh, Toronto and Ontario area. So five in Canada, one came in from Quebec and the other four are here. So I was hoping I would get one that I knew was a little bit nicer and I didn't. So I was extra worried by that point. I was really worried.
0: Okay. and... And lo
1: and behold, when I finished he like came up to me after and was like well you just passed by the your teeth." Jesus, like, damn teeth <laughs> well i passed <laughs>
0: <laughs> you gotta love that it's, yeah it's always interesting for me um, those people in food whether it's wine or whatever that are uh you know just tough and um hard to impress or hard to you know show that you're good enough um it's an interesting uh it's an interesting industry to be in to say the least um
1: yeah, it is. It's, I like to call it academic drinking are yeah. basically a, a lot of people that learn a lot about wine and display it in an academic way. So it, to me, it, it's the close. if you've ever been to university or have ever done like a very academic study, you're constantly around people that are like fact-checking you or it's all part of the conversation. It kind of feels like that, but based entirely around drinking.
0: Yeah. I I can, uh, I can only imagine. Um, so, I mean, you, you attain your, uh, your sommelier, uh, ranking, uh, were you still working at restaurants in the t- at the time or now?
1: Yeah, I was working at restaurants the whole way through. And, uh, at, by the time I had first, I had passed my intro sommelier exam, which I'd passed uh, a year beforehand that, that one's a lot easier. Than the certified because it's it's basically just like a, a, a quiz. If you've been working in restaurants and studying a bit, you'll be fine for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the certified that's really hard. So I had already been working and working as like a junior sommelier at that point, uh, and working towards becoming a sommelier. Yeah, and um, and so by the time I had passed, I'd already gotten I'd already gotten moved up to become a wine director, and then I moved on to be a sommelier at a restaurant, and. Uh, by that time, I was already working within an importing company that I had created. I've now since left. Wow. So I decided to leave doing a full time job at a restaurant and start working as an independent contractor. So that's where I am now. And that's been about like three years ago, just over three years ago now, that I've been working as a consultant and a contractor. It was easier for me to manage my time, but now that business has uh, taken over all my life. And I, uh, provide a different side of sommelier service and a different side of that uh, being a wine expert into my field.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the reason why I wanted to have you on. Um, I remember like seeing your profile on Instagram and seeing wine consultant and it's not really something I'd heard of. Although now since seeing it, there are, you know, that is, you know, something I now know of. Um, but if you just want to go into detail what that entails, and I mean, I guess we'll start with, um, Say if you were to consult a restaurant, what does that look like for you when someone hires you to consult their wine list?
1: So basically, what I the, the services that I provide for, for restaurants are helping them set up their wine list, helping them update their wine list, uh, putting it all in place, doing staff training, doing management training. Uh, it could be also like a contract service where I'm actually physically there at the restaurant okay. providing... Um, upselling, uh, helping with the overall guest experience and everything focused around wine in that way. I also uh, teach sales classes to restaurants, like how to sell wine. And, uh, so if they have a list that they really like, but they want it to move more, it's not moving enough, then that's another service that I provide. I look at wine from a multitude of different angles and the biggest thing to me is I think all wine is delicious unless it's the ones that my grandparents made and, <laughs> uh, plus <laughs> that one. Uh, so there's always a way to get people to interact with it. It's just, I don't think people have enough information as, as, uh, guests, as diners. So providing that and also providing restaurants with the ability to have a good list that can sell that works for them is, is ideal for me. And that's what I provide.
0: Okay. Um, is it, do you find it more, uh, I don't want to say difficult because obviously you know what you're doing, but is it for you, is it more of a challenge to write a wine list for someone who just has like an open, like say like they really don't have a general theme or is it more, um, challenging to write a list for say an Italian restaurant who wants to stick to mainly Italian wines?
1: To me, it, it, neither, neither matters because I I really want to do the best job I can for that business. Okay. So if they don't know what they want off, bef- or even if they do know what they want before I have my my first meeting with my client, uh, they've already hired me. They told me that they want to work with me. Uh, I will do a lot of pre research. Before I come up to that first meeting, okay, uh, I'll find out as much as I can about their business, the style of food that they're making, who the chef is, what the background of the business is. Uh, so, and I'll start overlaying that with wines I think would sell well there, wines that go with their overall cuisine. And it doesn't matter if it's a smaller restaurant or if it's a restaurant that's that's really theme based, like have a cuisine theme based, because that happens a lot here in Toronto. Um, There are restaurants that really stick to the theme, like the Italian restaurants will sell a lot of Italian wine. The contemporary Canadian restaurants will sell pretty much anything across the board, French restaurants, French wine. So it it really depends on uh, where what style of restaurant it is. And the fact that I put all the effort into becoming a sommelier is because I I love wine and I love it from across the globe. So it doesn't really matter to me what the what the goal of their list is. I find that I'm usually coming in with as much information as I can know about the restaurant beforehand. Mm -hmm. And then usually by the time I talk to the owner for the first time or uh, the beverage director, it's uh, to talk about budget and what they want to spend, how much they, they want the wine to move, what their markups are going to be, where things are going to sit uh, in terms of being on their list and being profitable for them. Okay. Um,
0: yeah. And so I guess what is for you, what is the key to uh, – I mean, you have a wine list. It's ready to go. The restaurant starts operating. What is the key um, in terms of selling wine, in your opinion? Like what are some good uh, – good measures are like how like if your word explains to the restaurant owner here are some good ways to sell wine what would you tell them
1: I like to tell restaurant owners that they should get their service down packed And, and what I mean by that is you only really have a couple of questions that you can ask people before you start recommending a product to them I also like to stress to them that if they're going to a table, if somebody's going to a table and asking, uh, oh, are you ready to order? Do you know what you'd like to drink? And they say no, to, instead of leaving the table, ask if somebody would like a recommendation. Mm-hmm. Constantly be opening doors for yourself to have conversations with guests. What I teach and what I uh, instill in staff members and in management is the ability to open doors the ability to get people to answer questions that are either yes or no, that'll move the dire- the direction of the conversation forward to getting them to a wine that they would like, or to put themselves in a conversation where they can start to communicate with their guest in a productive way that moves them towards a wine that they would like. Okay. So that's, that's basically the two things that I, that I'll teach them and how that essentially works is by you really want to listen to what the guest would like. So you want to start asking them questions that that are geared around what they would like to do. So you can... I'm so sorry, I have to sneeze.
0: you <clears throat>
1: Sorry. Okay. So uh, you want to gear ask the guest questions around a wine that they would like for tonight. Well, do, do they want red? Do they want white? If they want a red, would they like something fuller or lighter? Do they want oak on a white? Do they not want oak on a white? If they don't know what that means always find a fun way to explain it. There's, you talk to your guests in a way that doesn't make them feel underrated. At the same time, you want to make them feel like you really want them to be there because they could have gone to any other restaurant, but they're here at yours. So you really want to appreciate them, provide them help, but also not provide them help in a way that makes it seem like you're a know-it-all.
0: Okay. I, that's a, uh, cause I've, I've talked to some people who have been interested in wine on the podcast. I actually just did one with a couple of friends, which hasn't come out yet. And when we got to wine, uh, my friend is basically saying how, you know, wine for a lot of people could be viewed as like hard to like not not as accessible. You know, like it could be it could seem difficult or it could seem intimidating to start out drinking wine or to ask for help or advice at a restaurant. Uh, why do you think it is that we've we've had this culture where people feel, I guess, uncomfortable ordering wine? And I mean, I know it's changing, but where do you think that came from?
1: I just I find it so interesting that I think a lot of people have made other people feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. because, like, I when I started drinking wine, wine was the first thing that I started drinking um, because I knew I knew what it was, despite the fact that I knew that my grandparents' wine was terrible. When I started drinking for the first time, I drank wine. When I went to go order a beverage at a restaurant, I ordered wine. So and because of my background, it was part of my life. But I remember being in restaurants when I was younger, I would always order a sweeter wine. Your palate usually starts off with something sweeter. And I liked Gewürztraminer, but I could never remember what it was called. (laughs) Never, ever, ever. It's really long. uh, And when you're starting out, it's, it's really hard to say. So I used to be like, oh, I would like a, a glass of the wine that's long and it begins with a G, please. <laughs> and I would ask that and then you'd get back from the from the server, from the bartender, oh, do you mean a reverse demeanor? Like it's that kind of interaction that puts people off from, from learning about something, that kind of pushing them down a little bit. Yeah. And uh, in, instead of that, you, the better interaction would be Oh, I think I know the exact wine that you're talking about. Let me bring over the bottle. We'll get you to give it a try, and if it's your and if it suits your palate perfectly, here I'll pour you a glass. Like that's that's the right way to do it. So if somebody doesn't know something, the most important thing is to not make them feel like they don't know. They already know that they don't know. Mm-hmm. So making that more apparent to them is never helpful. <laughs> no and more so just puts them on the spot and, and it happens with everything whenever you feel like you don't know something somebody pointing it out to you it's like well thank you very much i wasn't aware <laughs> um yeah so uh, i feel that people have been in a, a lot of situations where they've been surrounded by the pretension of wine and you have a, a lot of different styles of wine enthusiasts that that they do enjoy talking about wine in such a way but it. The problem is, and, and and where sommeliers kind of play a really big role, is that we have to break down the barriers of understanding. So if somebody doesn't know what something is, if somebody says, oh, I, I don't like wines that make my mouth feel dry, they don't like tannins. Mm-hmm. So what you're supposed to do is not correct them. Oh, you mean the tannins? Because they still don't know what that is, is just to, to to take that and be like, okay, I know that this guest is telling me they want a low tannin wine. Mm-hmm. So let's do it like that instead. So when it comes to learning more about wine, when I tell people uh, that anybody can learn about wine, it's it's the one product in the world that no matter what, at the end of the day, it's going to make you feel good. It's a livation. It comes, well, at least it, where I live, it's as cheap as $8 a bottle up to well in the thousands, 10,000 plus dollars. So it is a product that spans a lot of different people and a lot of different class ranges. So you don't have to know a lot about wine to start drinking it. But if you wanted to know more about wine, what I tell people is start start trying things that you don't know. Start trying things that scare you. Just order. And don't taste the wine to, for if I like it or not. Start tasting the wine to see what it is in the glass. It's going to break down how you feel. And it doesn't actually take a lot of... Uh... Yeah. So it starts to break down the wine in a way that... Um, it starts to break down the wine the way that that's really understandable. It takes away the fact that you have to know where the wine is from where it was made, all this kind of stuff, and it just starts to put it into perspective of this is what this wine is and this is what the notes in the wine are. And that's all. Okay. And then from there the learning can really start.
0: All right, awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that cuz I'm sure as someone who is a sommelier, you run into that a lot of, you know, going out, wanting to help people but them having been put off before by someone else and then you trying to kind of mend that relationship with them and wine. Um, you know, I imagine. Yeah, it's tough. It really
1: this happened a lot. It happens a lot, but it's just the the thing to keep in, in, in mind with, with anything if you're the the person to be on the scene last after like a bad interaction beforehand is just keep the positivity and remember that people don't like to be told what to do and they don't want to feel dumb. Mm. That's pretty much it. And it works for everything.
0: Yeah. Um so I getting into the other aspect of your business uh would be the consulting for personal wine cellars. And I'm really interested in this because um, obviously I know if you do have a dedicated wine cellar, you are very serious about wine. Um, And so I'm interested Mm -hmm. to know your kind of approach to how you help people build their own wine cellar. Because I know that that could be very important for someone. They could pass that down to another family member or like the family they have. And like, I just know that it's probably a really special thing for them. And it, it, you must like, you must be really like good at it to be allowed into that kind of realm of selecting what's going to be in their house and what they're going to show to their friends or whoever else comes by?
1: Yeah, so uh, these are, the, like, the hardest types of clients to meet. They are they are people that you do often have, like, a working friendship with. Um, like, you, they're your clients, but they're also your friends because you're invited into their homes mm-hmm. to, to work with them in a more personal manner. And the most – the funnest part for me about – doing working with somebody on their seller is that it doesn't really matter what price range you're going for uh, I like to think about it in a way like if you're going for price if you if you want to buy wines that are going to appreciate in value or hopefully appreciate in value wine is a lot like art it's uh, some wines really appreciate very well in value and some just don't so it really depends um, but if you're going for that then that's what I'll look for if you want to make your seller, uh, more geared around just what you like, what your palate is. So if you like big, bold, heavier styles of reds, like Napa Cabs, and that's what you want your cellar to be full of, no problem. We will, f- I'll fill your cellar with as many of those as you would like. Um, and that's the fun part about it, because although I've spent all this time learning about wine, uh, when it comes to what I actually like to drink when I'm not... At work or when I when I'm not learning about a specific region, my palate gears more towards white wines with high minerality and lighter style reds, usually anywhere from like a Pinot Noir to uh, a Bernello, but more of like a traditional style. And uh, I don't often drink um, those bigger, bolder styles. I do to study, and but I don't. I kind of separate my life when I'm I'm drinking. Uh, I'm tasting a wine because I'm studying about it mm-hmm. versus I'm just sitting down and having a drink. So those are those are the two separate ways that I kind of think about it. So I get to explore these areas and these types of wines more, especially when I work with people that uh, I don't often drink by myself. And because I've I've worked with them in so many different ways, they see that I'm I don't really take a I don't really take an ego towards it. I just want to make them happy. So if they want to collect a style they like, if they want to collect for aging, if they want to collect because they want their seller to appreciate a value, it depends on whatever they want to do. Anything is accomplishable.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, my no problem. Ne- yeah. Uh, my next question, I guess, for you, uh, you kind of mentioned it a little bit. Um, but I would love to know what your favorite varietals were. Or, I mean, you mentioned it briefly, but I guess, you know, you said Pinot Noir or high min- minerality mm-hmm. uh, white wine. What are those wines that you find yourself loving the most nowadays?
1: So I Pinot Noir has always been my favorite style of red wine because it's different every time. And what I mean by that is no matter where you take that grape and you plant it in the world, it's going to be a reflection of terroir. And terroir is... The place where the grape was grown, it's everything around the grape all together, all summed up into one. So it's why Pinot's from France taste different from Pinot's from California, from New Zealand, from Canada. It's different every time, which is so interesting to me. But if I'm not drinking those styles of wine, I really love uh, um, Narello Mascaleche and Narello Cappuccio. They're the two grapes that are part of the Etna Rosos which is a volcanic wine made on the side of the Etna volcano in Sicily. They tend to have a nice vibrant uh, red fruit notes, a little bit of more like a tartar red cherry note Mm -hmm. and some nice mineralistic structures as well. So they really give a lot of bang in the glass while well being uh, wines that lean on minerality and lean on more earthier tones. So those are the kinds of red wines that I dream of. Uh, another one would be like Granacha, but uh, from Sierra de Grados in, in Spain. Totally different style of, of uh, Granacha than you would find in like a Chateau de the Pape or from Priorat. It's more of like a leaner style. And you're really looking at it as as almost like a, as heavy as a Brunello would be. Brunellos are also my favorite. Uh, And then for white wines, uh, I really enjoy like Italian varietals for white wines. Uh, One of my absolute favorites is a uh, Timorasso. Timorasso is a native grape to northern Italy from Piemonte. And it has a lot of driving mineral notes to it. It has uh, this specific note of, like, firestone mixed with almost, like, pear and uh, orchard fruit notes, a little bit of stone fruit as well. And it's had a high minerality within the glass and a leaner finish, which is just phenomenal to me. Uh, the other one that I really love is Arnais, which is often nicknamed as uh, White Barolo. Okay. Uh, clearly, they're both from Piemonte region, and I'm in love with the region. But uh, it's, it's another wine that has like these really high, high aromatics. But on the palate, it's really lean. It's very well structured. Um, and then the other option that I would normally go for, uh, if I were to do something a little bit more New World, uh, I've always enjoyed um, the otter varietals that are coming out of, um, out of California like a ribola gialla from California is really interesting to me. It's another Italian varietal that's native native to Northern Italy, but it is, when it's done in California, it really kind of uh, brings it a little bit more of a softer side. So I, I like wines where I can see what's happening in one side of the world, but I could also try it from another side of the world and really enjoy it. But they're usually leaner across
0: the board, reds and whites. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, Thank you. I mean, I'm definitely going to have to try those out because you've really made a good case for them. Um, but I guess my uh, <laughs> I guess my next question would be, you know, I really enjoy your Instagram. I think you put out a lot of cool content in terms of how people can... Thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, how people can pair wine with food. Um, if anyone hasn't seen her Instagram, it really is great. Uh, there's a lot, just a lot of great information. Uh, her posts are very informative. And I was just wondering, um, like with food and wine, what is, like, what is a go-to pairing for you, and um, why do you, why do you enjoy sharing these pairings on your Instagram?
1: So, I like sharing these on, uh, sharing things about wine on Instagram, because just like we've been talking about, I like to break down the barriers of wine. There's, it's, it is a complicated subject, but there's so many ways to understand it, and oftentimes, I think that people are not just, are just not telling you about it correctly. Huh. It would be much under, more understandable if, if you could just follow the, the, the thought pattern and the mindset behind it. So pairings for me, especially when I'm posting on Instagram, I, I like to do pairings that are, that are right over the plate. Um, so those are ones that are, are really obvious pairings, and they're really helpful for people when they start learning. So that would be like duck and Pinot Noir, salads and Sauvignon Blanc, uh, doing like um, a tomato sauce pasta with a Sangiovese or a lamb dish with a Shiraz. These are like wines and pairings that go really well together constantly. But one of, my, uh, one of my favorite, favorite pairings I've actually ever done, and I'm going to do a different pairing than when we talked about before because I was thinking about it when we left, and I was like, ooh, this one's really cool. <laughs> so I do a lot of work for um, Autism Speaks, and every year I do the wine pairings for uh, this big gala that we do. And uh, this year's wine pairing was a little bit difficult because I had one chef uh, who was doing a seafood dish But I had already booked a red wine, only reds for the main dish. And he was cooking seafood. Usually he does game meat. But because he had a, he did sable fish, but because he had a very heavy umami flavored broth and very heavy vegetables and more of like an earthier toned sauce, that can pair well with a red wine. You just need a red wine that has a high enough level of acidity to match the fish And not very, like, overpowering levels of tannins. Okay. Those things that make your mouth dry. So you need tannins when you're eating fattier foods. Because what tannins do are they strip fats from proteins. We're a protein. You eat meat. It has fat in it. You drink a wine with lots of tannins. It clears your mouth. Mm -hmm. Fish has low fat. So you want low tannins. But you want a higher acidity because you want the salinity and the acidity to match so you can do these really weird pairings and those are like the fun ones for me because they really showcase a side of a wine and food pairing that you wouldn't always get and I love to share those with people but when I'm at home one of my favorite things to make is a mushroom bolognese pasta and I'm usually drinking that with some sort of chardonnay because i just i think they go great together the aromatics match really well um it's a wine that has a little bit more weight as a white wine and it goes great
0: with a pasta all right awesome well thank you for sharing those um is there no problem i know um you know as you know as well we're in a pandemic right now so a lot of people are home Uh, what are some materials whether it be a podcast or a just a book or anything at all that you've like found interesting or you think would be a good resource for people to learn wine.
1: Favorite books to recommend, and everybody that works in wine and, and starts studying it at a higher level will recommend this book to you because it is a great book to just start off your journey. And it sounds so cliche because everyone recommends it, but it's honestly the best. And that's the wine Bible by Karen McNeil. It really lays out everything in a very easy, readable way. It reads like a novel. It doesn't feel like the other wine books that you can get out there, the other the other wine books that are there to learn about wine in a more academic way, you're learning in a way that's a little bit more fun and a little bit easier. Like, for example, when you get to Chateau Neuf pape in, in in south of in the southern Rhone of France, there's this hilarious story about uh, how the vineyards, uh, the vineyard owners thought there was like UFOs coming, and she tells this like really unique story about this region, and it adds into everything else that is happening, and it makes wine seem a lot more fun mm. because it should be. So that that's the funnest thing that that the, the, the mo- most uh, thing I recommend to people is to pick up the wine bible. Uh, the other thing is there's the podcast I'll drink to that. I think it's called, and that one's a really good one because it, it really breaks down. Yes. So there's, I'll drink to that, which is really good. And then I also, it's a great podcast you can get on Spotify and then I also really enjoy uh, GuildSOM, Guild, the Guild of Sommeliers, but they their website's GuildSOM. And they run a lot of webinars that are really easy to learn from as well. So that, that's a, a great place to start, too.
0: Right, awesome. Well, thank you for sharing those as well. Um, you know, as we get near the end of the podcast, I do want to ask, uh, how have you been doing, um, you know, during this time? I mean, ha- have you? is there anything that you've done in the last few weeks or pursued that maybe you hadn't done before? Or are you, like cooking anything that maybe you love cooking and you just now have more time to do it what's what's the last few weeks been like for you
1: well for me usually when I get this this type of time off where I'm not like it's not really time off for me because I'm always working Mm -hmm. for my I work for myself so I'm, I'm always working but I'm not at restaurants right now which is which is really sad because I really like to do that but I'm basically working on my website, Uh, putting up a new blog, I have uh, some courses for online that I'm working on as well, and then I have a lot of projects with the Court of the Master Sommelier, sorry, with the uh, Canadian Association for Professional Sommeliers here in Ontario, Uh, and we're working on a bunch of different projects together. We have a broadcast every Monday on Caps Ontario's Instagram uh, called Night Caps, and I'm one of the The co hosts in that broadcast. So, and where we talk to different wine professionals from around the world or in Ontario, like uh, a couple weeks back, I interviewed Dylan Proctor. The last one was an interview with Andrew Jefford. So, those are all the projects that I'm currently working on right now. Mm -hmm. Outside of that, I've cleaned my house more than I normally
0: clean it. Nice. That's about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's good to hear. Good yeah great well yeah you know stay safe during this and like i said i really do enjoy the instagram so it's been fun to follow along and see what you've been coming up with um but yeah i do want to say like i said thank you again for being on the show uh it's it was been a pleasure to talk to you now twice um but no problem (laughs) i end all podcasts the same uh which is um You know, now that you've been on the show, you are part of the Line Cook Nation, a group of chefs, cooks, and food service workers who are looking to grow and connect with each other. And I just wanted to know what it means for you to be a part of the community.
1: Well, I'm I'm always big on a sense of community, uh, despite the fact that I work for myself. Because of the work that I do with the Canadian Association of Professional Sommeliers, we're part of the Sommunity, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But restaurants in themselves and and hospitality workers in themselves were all part of this like larger community whether it's front or back of house we all have to deal with uh, the hustle and bustle of it all and carry ourselves through together so the ability for us to stand together and to help each other out and to to move through things with like grace pride and uh just overall teamwork and togetherness is, is really important. So I'm always happy to be part of any new community because I I feel like it's, it's a way to further cement the bonds uh, of hospitality workers and anybody within the field uh, across any boundaries that the world has.
0: Okay, awesome. Um, if you just want to drop your Instagram and any other information that you might want people to go visit or check out.
1: Sure. So... Like I said, my name is Renee Sperazza, and you can follow me on uh, Instagram at wine.by.renee And I'm a certified Psalm, and I like talking about wine, and it's super fun. Uh, and then if you would like some more wine content, please stay uh, in touch with my Instagram, but you can also check out my website, which is reneesparazza.com. Just go to the Instagram page. You'll see it on there. <laughs> my last name is hard to spell. I get it, but I got you covered if you head to the Instagram
0: <laughs> awesome yeah and i'll be sure to share the links to all that in the show notes and you know i'll tag you on the post for this podcast but like i said thank you so much for making the time to do this again uh, i really think that you know your content is much needed especially in a time like this and i'm really excited to see uh where you take it
1: Thank you so 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 much. I really appreciate being a part of this day, and I have no problems that we we did this twice. I I really enjoyed talking to you the first time, and I'm glad that uh, we can get more chats about wine out there. Why not?
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you.